Well, hello, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Quick shout out to TJ, who left us a review on iTunes. He said, this podcast has changed the way I look at real estate. Michael has great guests on who offer great insights into their respective businesses. Look forward to new episodes, and we're going to have an insight into a new business on this show as well. I also want to give a highlight to uh, anyone that we've materially helped to do their deal. That's what we're about. We want to help 1,000 people become financially free with real estate. And I want to give out a shout out to Oleg Shalomov, who did his first deal. It was a 20 units in Alabama. Uh, he was working with one of our mentors, uh, who's Josh Sterling. So congrats on Oleg for doing their first deal. If you want to find out more about how you can do your first deal and you value mentorship, check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. We actually have a training video on there. You can review our mentors and you can schedule a call with our, what we call the, sh the chief strategist to see if mentoring is right for you. And uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. That's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Well, that, let's get our co-host on the show here, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? Hey, Michael. So one of the things that we talk about internally, it seems like once every quarter and some heated debates around this thing is should we create our own property management company, right? And the reason we would ever want to do that is because there's no such thing as a perfect project manager. At least I haven't found one yet or experienced one. You know anyone who has ever talked to one. The problem, of course, is, uh, is so you, you have things you don't like and then you could presumably change these things by creating your own property management company so you can architect what you want. But the problem is now you're bringing on a whole bunch of complexities. So you're solving one problem and now you're creating a whole nother problem. Uh, where do you fall on this uh, on your uh, on this debate? So I've done it both ways. My first business before I met you guys, we self managed, and now we're obviously third party managing. And so I think you really got to look at what does a property manager do for you? Like what are they actually doing? And what they're doing is they're essentially controlling the HR for the most part and the accounting of your business. And so you got to think, all right you're buying into their systems and their economies of scale on that end. Now this, if they're really good at that, then it can be really helpful because they know how to build out their systems and you're just kind of buying into their, their whole system and process. If they're not so good at it, you're gonna be in a real world of hurt. And so I've done it both ways. And while I enjoyed the control of the first version, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So it made it really tough when it came time to hire, like we would lose, let's say like a leasing agent or, or anyone on site. And all of a sudden we had, we're scrambling, trying to figure out how to hire them and, and find the right one. And I spent a lot of my time hiring people. And so not having to do that this round for me has been just so much better in general, not having to deal with those kind of headaches. But if you like that side of the business, maybe it is for you. I just observe that as people, I mean, it's clearly one of the benefits of multifamily is that you can outsource a property management company. And that's uh, particularly useful when someone is getting into the business. And it certainly has served us well uh, going into 2000 units. My observation is, though, that as, as the companies get larger, they tend to also self-manage. And it's something I think that we will continue talking about probably every single quarter because it's a matter of control. Right. I want the same reporting coming out of all of our properties. I want this particular initiative rolled out. I want to put solar panels on every one of my buildings. I don't care what you think. Right. And so there's a matter of control that we would get by self-managing. 
Because otherwise, with a property manager, you can't necessarily tell them what to do. Yes, you can yank your business from them, but you can't say, I want this done in this particular way. I want to use, I want for you to use this property management software because now I have five different management software. You only can influence them to do what you want to do. You can apply pressure. You can bribe them, right? But at the end of the day, you can't force them to do what you want. And this is frustrating to us. And on some property managers are better at one thing than others. Some is really good at leasing. One sucks at leasing. One's really good at the bookkeeping and the numbers. The other one is great at leasing, but sucks at the numbers, right? It's like you can't find this perfect thing. So, you know, I think it's one of the things that's going to stay at our top of our conversation. But if we had to do it, Garrett, how do you think we should do it? How do you think anyone should create their own property managing company? So if you're going to do it, and I talk a little bit about this in the show, is you want to hire the best talent on the highest level that's done this before. So somebody that, let's say you have a thousand apartments and you want to start your own property management company, you want to hire somebody that's a director of operations or, or somebody, your asset manager that's managed 10,000 units. So a thousand units is easy. And you may have to stretch to be able to afford that person in the beginning. And it may really, really hurt, but that's the right way to go about it. The way we did it was we hired a leasing manager and then we tried to build on top of that. And, oh, because we can afford a leasing manager. Let's go for that. It was the wrong way to do it. You want that top person to be able to build it from the top down and help you build your systems and processes. Yeah, I think that's the general a good advice for any time you hire. And uh, you know, in the beginning, you try to bootstrap stuff. You're trying to save money, and so you start with the VA and then the you know the hourly person. But really, what I've learned now over the years is the best way to do it is from higher from higher from the top down, just exactly the way you said. And the problem with that is that person is highly compensated, right? So how do you get yourself in that? But really, everything else flows from that person. Maybe you can hire that person even on a part time basis, but that person. If they're a high quality person, which presumably they are, they will solve all the problems for you, right? I mean, it's a little bit like how we approached Nighthawk. I mean, it all started with uh, with Drew, you know, and he did a bunch of stuff, and then you came on board, and the, and the three of us from that point on filled in all the holes. Had I start tried to start doing from the bottom up, you know, hire an asset manager, and then maybe a property manager, it, it would have taken me a lot longer. I would have made even more mistakes than we already did. So hiring from the top down is the way to do it. I think that's the only way we'll do it is to find someone who is experienced property manager, maybe the number two of a large, larger firm, and we can induce them to come over and start a whole property management company. That's probably the way to do it. So interesting that we have someone with property management is a, is a relevant topic because today we have Kevin Bupp on the show who is has a huge portfolio in mobile home parks. He's got his own uh, podcast about, about this. And we want to talk to him about, about the state of you know, mobile home parks, how it's fared over, over the months, and, and particularly how you get into mobile home parks, how you scale mobile home parks. And then you can kind of figure out, hey, the pros and cons of mobile home parks. And that's kind of what we're talking with Kevin Bupp. He's been doing this for a long time. He started this in 2010. And uh, he's been an entrepreneur a lot longer than that. He's done a bunch of stuff. And uh, I want to find out, you know, why is he in mobile home parks? And more importantly, why is he stuck with it, right? Because there's so many cool opportunities that we see all the time. And we're going to get all into mobile home parks with Kevin Bupp. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. Michael, Garrett, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. 
Yeah, it's been a it's been a little while since we had you on last. You're my little token mobile home park guy. And man, it's like <laughs> it's like we gotta you know we gotta check in on each other a little, a little bit as well. And uh, for those who don't know you, uh, give us a little bit of background about you and and uh, and how you got into mobile home parks. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I've never been referred to as the token mobile home park guy, but I'll take it. I'll take it. I like that better than guru. I'm not a big fan of that word, but in any event, yeah, I'll try to keep this short and sweet. So, I mean, I've, I've been an entrepreneur pretty much my entire life. I mean, I was 12 years old with the paper out, 14 years old was installing car stereos and electronics into my older brother's cars and his friend's cars and all that kind of stuff, anything to make some side hustle money. And uh, ultimately got into real estate um, when I was 19 years old, started buying and flipping houses like a lot of folks do, wholesaling as well, and ultimately found my way into, into commercial real estate back in about 2004. And that initial stage of commercial real estate was multi, smaller multifamily properties, you know, 12 units, 18 units, 24 units, did some self-storage, did some retail, did a just kind of a, tried everything out over a period of time and ultimately found my way into mobile home parks in about 2011. And as a lot of these things happened, it was just, it was just by accident. I had never had an interest or never even considered mobile home parks as an asset class. I just happened to have a close friend that knew, knew a banker. That banker had just recently retired and he started buying mobile home parks. And he had told my friend about, you know, how, how great he was doing with these couple of assets he had purchased and suggested I just go meet him and just to meet a new person and, uh, you know, expand my network. And ultimately, his name was Randy. Had lunch with Randy one day. And after about two hour lunch with Randy, he piqued my interest in many different ways about how great mobile home parks were and that uh, I needed to go buy one. And ultimately, I followed his advice. I, I went and bought a mobile home park. It took me a little over a year to do it. Uh, about 14 months after that lunch meeting with Randy, made a lot of offers, got cold feet a couple of times on deals, and then finally closed on that first mobile home park back in 2012 and uh, actually just sold that park uh, about four, four or five months ago. So we held that one for quite some time and that was in Atlanta. And so since then, that, that first park, we did that one and that went well, bought the second park, see if we could replicate you know, the success. That went well, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and, and thereafter. And so you know, the, over the past five years, we've actually built a syndication company, uh, Sunrise Capital Investors. And today we own assets in 12 different markets and, um, and we love mobile home parks. So that's, uh, that's a short and sweet of it. <laughs> Why do you love mobile home parks? Yeah, you know, I I've always I've always considered myself to be a contrarian investor. I like kind of going, you know, where the herd isn't going, and and that might not be the case today with mobile home parks. I feel like they've they've got a lot of notoriety over the last couple of years. But when I got into the space, it very much was. I mean, there wasn't a lot of competition. You could pick up assets for just phenomenal prices. The cap rates were substantially higher than that of a comparable apartment complex in the same marketplace. I mean, you'd be looking at. 200 basis point premium over what the same, you know, comparable apartment complex might have been selling for. So if you were paying seven cap, you could probably get that same mobile home park or same quality for a nine cap, right? And so the cash from cash returns were substantially higher. In addition to that, you know, the uh, the ownership structure, and this is one of the things that that Randy kind of again, you know, one of the main things he piqued my interest with was the ownership structure. You know, looking back ten years predominantly was mom and pop owners, 90% mom and pop owners. And, you know, that's, it's, the market's been consolidated uh, a decent amount here over the past decade, but, but still about 60 to 70% of the mobile home parks that exist in the world today or in the U S are still owned by generational mom and pops. You know, typically it's either first generation or second generation. So it's a unique asset class in that number one, a lot of them are aging out of these assets, but number two, a lot of them 
they haven't kept up with the market. I mean, you guys have bought uh, mom and pop apartments in the past. And we quite often find mobile home parks that, you know, rents haven't been raised in 10 years. They haven't billed back for utilities. You know, their, you know, their expenses are incredibly heavy, you know, much heavier than what they should be. They're not really running like a business. They got friends and family kind of doing things at the property. And there's just a more efficient way to skin that cat. And ultimately that's where a lot of the opportunities are created in the mobile home park space. And so one of the other big reasons that that I love mobile home parks, and again, one of these things that Randy piqued my interest with was the lower turnover rate. And so, you know, the majority of the parks that we own today are structured to where the actual residents own the mobile home. So they actually own the physical mobile home and they pay us for lot rent. And so they're responsible for their own roof, their own HVAC, their own plumbing, anything that happens to go wrong with their home, they don't call us about it. So that's that's beautiful from a, a main, um, you know management side, maintenance management side. But also what that means is that it's incredibly expensive for them to move that home from one location to another. Now they are movable, but they're strapped down, they're anchored into the ground. It costs, you know, $5,000 on average to move a single wide if you're moving it, you know, within that same marketplace. And what we have found is that about 95% of the mobile homes that make it into a mobile home park, they leave the factory, go to a mobile home park, they never leave. And if they do leave, they leave because some, someone demoed that home after 50 years. They threw it in the garbage, basically, and put a new one there. So I, I love the aspect of the low turnover rate in comparison to that of typical rental housing where you know, you've know you got a turnover. It might take a month or two to get that unit back online, what have you. That just doesn't happen in the mobile home park space. So one of the many reasons. Yeah. So what I've, you know, I have a couple of buddies that are in the mobile home uh, park space. And some of the challenges that I've heard that they've run into is is sometimes it's it's tougher to scale because you have to, you find these things from mom and pops and like tertiary markets. Uh, you have to self-manage them because it's tough to find good third-party managers. And so I'm just curious, is that true? And if so, how have you kind of pivoted around that to have the success that you've had? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. They're all very accurate points. The scalability, you know, f- from a mom and pop perspective, I don't know if that's necessarily relevant. I mean, if you're only out there buying like 30 and 40 space parks, then absolutely, it would take a very long time to scale. That's not really our MO. I mean, we've owned some smaller parks over the years, but just like a lot of investors as they evolve, they, they realize very quickly that there's many more efficiencies that exist with larger asset types. And so we don't really go after those small, you know, just because they're mom and pop doesn't mean they're small. And so there's plenty of mom and pops that own, you know, larger, larger hundred plus space mobile home parks, 200 space mobile home parks, what have you. And so that's typically where we're playing ball. Now, with regards to the property management side, that's that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting aspect of this business in that it can be looked at both sides as a pro and a con, right? It can be looked at as a barrier to entry, which is a benefit for those that are already in the space, right? That they're already buying assets that have a portfolio because it creates a lot of challenges for someone just getting started. You can manage maybe one, two, three of them yourself, but at that point in time, you have to make a decision. And as Michael and I were talking about when we were just you know interviewing your show, um, as you have to start hiring folks internally because there's not good third-party management companies. And so you basically have to commit. If you want to own more than just a few mobile home parks, you've got to make a commitment that not only am I going to build an investment business, but I'm going to build a property management company. I don't really want to, but I have to. And so we went down that same road. We we uh, attempted to uh, leverage a few different third, you know, large third-party management companies that have been in the business for 30, 40, 50 years that were on a national or regional scale. And we went through a testing phase. It lasted about a year and a half through three different companies. And it was all catastrophic. Each and every one of them was an absolute disaster. It didn't work. And so ultimately, again, we committed to 
we were at the point in our business where we had our own property management company, but we had to like basically double in size, at, you know, as we were growing. And that's ultimately what we did. So, and you had a third question there, and I, I don't recall what it was, but ultimately that, that those two points are very accurate. That was it, mostly those two. But I relate to that a lot because we had, uh, I, I bought a lot of Section A properties when I first got started. So I had like probably I don't know I had a bunch in Chicago, and I remember we got. The reason we decided to self-manage our portfolio of 3,400 apartments, because not you don't have to do that, obviously, in the apartment game, uh, is because we got burned by so many of the D-class managers. It just wasn't 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 feasible. And I remember the really funny story is we had like 12 people working on the 300 units, like maintenance guys and whatever else. And I was like, I think these guys are just screwing around. Like they're just hanging out at the gas station or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I fired everyone except for two people. And the portfolio ran exactly the same. <laughs> it did not change uh, yeah. at all. I got a question for you, Kevin. What, what is sure. the best practice? And you maybe, like all of us, maybe made some mistakes early on, but what is the best practice? Someone wants to get into the mobile home park game knowing that they have to self-manage. How would you do that over again? How would you get yourself into the property management side of that business? Yeah, that, that's that's a that's a very good question. Looking back at how we did it, I would now that there's a there's a lot more folks in the space. You know, when I got started, I mean, I, it, it was actually pretty difficult to go find people like that were that had information about it that were openly talking about investing in mobile home parks. Nowadays, it's it's very different, and so there's many different organizations such as ours that are already established, already doing their thing. I try to honestly, if I path of least resistance, I'd go back and try to find how to add value to a group like that. Uh, and find out what I'm really good at, whether it's raising capital or finding opportunities. And I try to, you know, wiggle my way into an uh, in, into a group that's already established that already has that part of their their business, um, you know, in place and, and built. That's what I would do because I don't know if there's another easy way to do it. I, I just don't. I mean, I think it's just a like we were talking about again in your show using acquisition fees and asset management fees and whatever fees you can to pay for this property management company because at least in our our business. We found that about a thousand units is about the threshold of where, you know, having necessary staff on the property management side to where it's actually at least breaking even. It's you know, it's it's slightly in the black because uh, it's not a profitable endeavor at all. Um, it's it's just not. It's a, it's a necessary evil. And so I don't know if there's a much easier way to do it unless you go out and buy a prop existing property management company. We actually had looked at doing that. We looked at buying a. A, a smaller tiered uh, multifamily. We looked at a couple multifamily property management company, and then you know just you know basically reshaping it to also encompass mobile home parks. And we just found that also to be too much of a challenge. And uh, unfortunately, there's not many again competent mobile home park management companies out there. So that strategy of going to buy one of those probably isn't the best approach either. So it sounds like to get started, you have a couple of options. One is a self-manage. Just get that in your brain. You're going to self-manage for a little while. Um, mm -hmm. And number two, uh, maybe focus on raising capital and align yourself with a more established operator. What does your team look like now? And maybe give us a progression of how you're able to scale up. Yeah. So on, on which side of the equation, on the investor side or on the, because uh, so we, I mean, we strictly have two different companies. I mean, the property management side of the equation is just that it's a property management company with, uh, you know, construction manager, uh, with an asset manager. We've got uh, you know boots in the ground, folks. We got a manager each at the community level in each one of the communities. We got repairs and maintenance guys, and all that kind of stuff. So it, you know the standard property management, I guess, uh, workforce. 
As far as on the on the investment side, Sunrise Capital Investors was originally uh, three principals that, that founded it. It was myself as a majority principal, and then two other principals. Uh, at present, there's there's two. It's myself and Brian Spear, my partner. Uh, we've been working together now for you know five plus years, and ultimately, so Brian is our is mainly our investor relations. He, he spends probably about eighty percent of his time on that side of the equation. He does have an assistant that also uh, you know helps him with just general items, uh, answering emails, uh, questions, and things of that nature, helping with K ones. And what have you. And then outside of that, I handled the majority of the acquisitions. We do have two other acquisitions folks on our team. I kind of I kind of lead the charge over there. And then in addition to that, we've got a, I guess what you could call as a CFO um, on our team. He, he's a man of many hats, but ultimately he helps us uh, with the capital stack, helps us, you know, place debt, source debt, what have you, and also runs our accounting team. So we've got three folks on our accounting team. So that, that's the majority of it. I mean, we're not a huge organization. We try to be incredibly efficient. Years ago, I'd say that we, um, we, we became actually even top heavy. We found ourselves, you, you never want to hire too slow, but we actually found in a certain situation, we, we actually hired too fast. We brought on way too many folks that we couldn't actually fulfill their, their time with. Uh, and they were very expensive folks to have on the team. So in any event, now, nowadays, we're just really, we're really focused on the efficient side of growing. I mean, we want to grow efficiently. We don't want to do deals just to do deals. We want to do deals that make a ton of sense. They make a lot of money for our investors and also allow us to put paychecks in our pockets and, and also pay our staff and, and retain our staff and, uh, and have a, more importantly, a really quali- a good quality of life. I mean, for us, our business is all about quality of life and spending time with our family and friends and, uh, and, and having the ability to do that. So I got, I got a great question. So when we built our management company, we, mm-hmm. we made a mistake and we built it from the bottom up. <laughs> we just, we started with like the, uh, I think it was like a leasing manager because we needed to improve our occupancy. Uh, but in hindsight, it probably would have done it from the top down. I would have yeah. waited until we scaled to a level where we could afford somebody that was more expensive and then built that way. Who are like, as you're scaling, would you say are like the top first two or three hires yeah. that you got to make. No, that's great. I mean, we literally, we, we bought in a very expensive uh, six-figure director of property management. So we brought that individual in that has actually had built out multiple other property management companies. He's been in property management for 35 plus years and uh, lived and breathed that business in many different capacities, both you know, very large single family home portfolios, multifamily portfolios. He did not have any MH experience, so n- no experience in the mobile home park side, although you know, it's, it's not rocket science. And, uh, but that, that was by far the most important hire him as well as a, I guess you could call her again, a, a person of many hats. She was like an admin assistant. However, she also had been in the property management space for, you know, 15 plus years. And basically the, the, the team of two there built out the remainder of the property management organization, but we paid, we paid heavily for that director of operations. I think uh, his initial salary coming in was roughly $140,000 a year, which was a, a tough pill to swallow. But I mean, I, I can't imagine doing it another way. I mean, it would have been a lot of brain damage. And the challenge that we had here, here's the big challenge that we had when we did it on our third test of property management companies, we handed off, I believe it was 14 of our properties. So f- fairly decent size. Of our, it was about two thirds of our portfolio. And throughout that year process with this third property management company, we had acquired eight additional properties, uh, each one of them, you know, a value add in one sense or another. And when we realized that we were absolutely bringing it back in house, we kind of behind the scenes, kind of build this out. We had to build the property management company out because what we didn't want to do is have 
that's property management company get wind that we were going to basically pull everything back in. Cause we, I mean, we, we were a substantial amount of revenue for them with how many properties that they had of ours. We don't want them to pull the sheet out from underneath us. And so we are secretly trying to build this thing behind the scenes so that when the day come, we, we could pull it all back in. We knew that that day was going to be very, very challenging to bring all those properties back in. And what we found is when we brought them back in, even the ones that we had handed off that weren't value added anymore, we had already stabilized them. We basically got back in 14 value added properties. And so it, it was an interesting period of time. It took us a, it took us a year to restabilize everything. We really didn't buy any additional assets during that year at all. I think we bought one, one property, but we'd have the capacity at that point. It was all about, we got to basically go in the fixing mode. I mean, we just repaired everything and, um, and ultimately got things back stabilized again. But uh, if we wouldn't have had that director of operations and, and that, that type of skill set in place, I don't know how it would have turned out. It would have been, it would have been pretty messy. We'd have probably figured it out as we all do, but it wouldn't, have, it surely wouldn't have been as efficient of a process as what it was. You mentioned value add, and obviously in multifamily, we go in and we renovate yeah. the outside, we renovate the units, we tighten, and then for that, we ask uh, more rent. What does a value add look like in mobile home parks? Yeah, yeah, and that's a great question. So you still have like the aesthetic side of things. I mean, going in and 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 repaving roads, either installing a clubhouse or repairing a clubhouse that might be there. You know, tree trimming if there's lots of tree. We have lots of communities that have lots of trees, and a lot of times trees are very expensive, and folks kind of defer those those costs when they're when they're in the ownership side. And so those are more the aesthetic side of things. But then also very common with mobile home parks, what you'll find is that. We acquire a park. Let's say it's got 100 lots. 80 of those lots are, you know, tenant-owned homes, so they're owned by the residents themselves. And let's say there's another 10 homes that are park-owned. You know, that some way, shape, or form over the years, the, the park acquired 10 units. Maybe someone passed away and handed the title back to them, or maybe they just got up and walked away, abandoned it, what have you. And a lot of times, those park-owned homes many situations they're not 100 occupied so we might have maybe a handful of renovations uh you know it could be upwards of i think the biggest community that we've ever done as far as vacant park on homes where we've had to renovate them was we got got the park and had 40 vacant park on homes so just like you guys are renovating interior units we're basically you know doing 40 flips inside the property uh, when we take it over in addition to those we're also going to bring in new homes. We're going to infill those vacant lots that might be there. And so if it's again, hundred space park and there's 10 vacant lots that have infrastructure in place, we're going to go put new orders in for a brand new single wides or double wides and get those into that community as well. And so just one of the many things uh, as far as value add side, uh, some of the other big ones are back 40, 50 years ago when a lot of these parks were built, water and sewer wasn't it wasn't a massive monthly expense for most folks. And so typically these parks were built with a master meter to where the park paid for the water and sewer expenses. And so that's only a fairly significant line item on the PL. And so what we'll do is we'll basically go in and put submeters, individual submeters at each one of the lots, uh, which we can just literally drop that expense right down to the bottom line. So that's a that's a huge value add component, one that a lot of folks overlook you know, when they get into the space. I mean, if I see a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollar a year water bill on a PL, I know right then and there, ninety-five percent of that can drop down to the bottom line and uh be hitting the NOI. So <laughs> Do you ever get into the business of buying one of these homes and then basically leasing it back? As I've heard about that as well, or not not really? Yeah. I, out of necessity, sometimes we do. I will tell you that there's just not a, a couple of things. There's not, there's not a lot of profit to be made. So let's say it's a, let's say it's a park that has a lot rent of 300, I'm using just round numbers, $300 a month. And let's say that we've got a single wide on it and, and we, in that market, we can get $800 a month for that single wide. Uh, so you got $500 gross potential monthly profit there. 
um, over the you know period of a year. Let's let you know. I'd say that the average tenant that we have units like that, they they end up staying maybe twelve or eighteen months. So you're going to turn that unit in twelve or eighteen months. You don't necessarily attract the best rental tenants to a mobile home park, even if it's a nice park. It's just a it's a slightly different grade on the rental side. On the homeowner side, very different. I mean, we've got you know homeowners in our communities that or you know equal to that of any subdivision throughout the US but for whatever reason on the rental side of it it's just a different grade uh, tenant that you get you'll know, probably C minus type tenant which a lot of times don't take as good of care of the units and so what i have found over time is that when you pair together that turn expense with maybe a month or two of downtime before you get that unit make ready again and back online there's literally very little to no profit left over on the rental side of the equation. And so what we prefer to do, knowing that the if it's a tenant-owned home, if they own that unit, they're going to be sticky. We've got some residents that have lived in our communities for 40 plus years. It's absolutely insane. I'd say the average length of our residents that actually own the homes is nine years. I mean, it's a very, very long time. And so what we prefer to do is fix that home up and then turn around and find a cash buyer or someone that could get a local bank loan and actually buy the unit from us and get it off our books. And we'll even lose money on a unit. So if we've got, let's say we've got $10,000 into a unit, we've got someone that comes along and, and they've got $7,000 cash. I will lose $3,000 all day long because at that $300 a month lot rent with a tenant home that's going to be there for many, many years to come, I just added probably thirty-five dollars or $40,000 of, uh, of value to that property. So I will lose $3,000 all day long. I'll lose $5,000 all day long to, to add thirty-five dollars or $40,000 value to the property and have a sticky tent that's going to be around for a very long time. Kevin, so obviously there's you know, a debt strategy, and I'm just curious what that looks like for mobile home parks as far as financing goes. Are you seller financing these things with the mom and pops here and there? Are you putting you know, agency debt on? What does that look like for, for you guys? That's a great question. Uh, I'd say that probably like the first dozen deals we did, the majority were owner finance. It's interesting. And, and I would say that the last couple of dozens of deals that we did, we didn't, there wasn't one that was owner finance. And I'm not sure exactly if the times have changed or what, but it's just uh, what I find to be the case most of the time now is that most sellers just, they just want to cash out. You know, they, they, they don't, they're not looking for that additional annuity. And there's some that are, but the, the, the uh, transactions we've been involved in over the last you know, four or five years, uh, mostly have just been you know, cash out, and which is fine. Uh, it, it doesn't make a difference. So long as there's, there's good debt available for that community, it doesn't really make a difference to us. And so to answer the other side of that, that question, you know, what type of debt's available? It's, it's very similar to that of a multifamily. Uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are both you know, players in the space. Fannie Mae, I mean, writes a ton of debt in the mobile home park space. Loan terms are, are very similar, again, to that of of uh, what you guys experience in the multifamily sector. You know, we also work with, you know, community banks when we have to. You know, there's plenty of bridge lenders out there depending on the type of project it is. So we've done some, you know, bridge type projects where we go from bridge over to perm via more than likely a Fannie loan. CMBS is in this space as well. There's plenty of CMBS lenders that will uh, uh, write non-recourse debt on, on, you know, mobile home parks. And so the, the debt actually, the debt is no longer the problem. I would say that when I first started buying parks, the debt was the problem. And I think that's why it became fairly prevalent for uh, owners to have to carry seller financing because there's just a lot of banks just didn't understand the asset class. So I would say that's probably why it was a lot more common maybe a decade ago than what you might find today. Now, again, I'm sure there's instances here and there where sellers want to carry back financing and just it's, you know, it's, it's in their best interest and also works out well for the buyer, but we don't see it that much anymore. 
Yeah, so debt has become uh, more accessible for this asset class. And then there's yeah. people like you on your podcast you know, promoting mobile home parks. There's a lot of people coming into the space, Kevin, right? I know. I, I wish I would have never. I wish I would never started that damn podcast. Son of a gun, right? So what are you? <laughs> so what are you doing to find deals? Yeah. So we love brokers. We've bought many of deals from brokers. So we we work that strategy just like like you guys do. I will say though that one one thing that makes us really unique is that you know we've carried over the tactics and tricks that I've learned in the single family game many many years back. We used to do a lot of direct mail, lots of cold calling, things of that nature, and so. We still do a lot of direct mail and we still do a lot of cold calling. So we literally have a full-time cold caller. Uh, sometimes we've had up to two or three, but you know, at present time as we record this, we've got one full-time person. That's all he does is pounds of phones all day long, talking to new prospects and also you know, continue to build relationships with uh, prospects he's spoken with in the past. He works out of our CRM system. And uh, so we get, we get the majority of our deals, I'd say over the past two or three years, just ballparking, probably about 70% of our deals that we've done have been off market, uh, directly sourced by us, either via cold call or direct mail. I'd say cold call nowadays works way better. Six, seven years ago, when a lot of folks weren't in the space and I wasn't talking about it as much, uh, we'd be able to send out a direct mail letter and we'd literally get like seven or 8% response rate and uh, we'd just clean up shop. So it was, a, it was a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, nowadays, if you get like half a percent response rate, you're doing good and they've got like a stack of letters on their, on their desk. So... <laughs> Kevin, do you think this is kind of like this strategy works well? Does it works doesn't work so well for us as apartment owners? Like I've actually I've landed deals, of course, that are that are large. They're not actually the last one we did. I did this strategy. I made like phone calls like six months ago, and someone just called me out of the blue on an eighty unit, right? But typically, the larger apartment owners in our space, they're going to be listing it with a broker or something like that. It's tough to pull off-market deals. Do you think that it's a little bit easier possibly because it's it's similar to single family homes in a sense that it's like you can find the mom and pop owners that maybe want to get out and that's that's kind of how that that might, might pan out or what kind of set yourself apart and yeah. why do you think it's so successful? Yeah, I think I think it's just a, I think it's mostly a, uh, effective in our space because it's a much more fragmented industry, uh, and that, that that's changing as as we see right now. It's changing over time. Like like our direct mail doesn't get we don't even we don't we do way less direct mail than what we do cold calling. We've, cold calling is still very effective, but again, most of the deals that we've bought direct to owner have been from owners that either own just one property or maybe they own you know two or three and you know they're i.e they're mom and pops right they're not sophisticated groups that have 500 million dollars of assets under ownership it's just i don't think that strategy works i'm not saying it wouldn't work and that you might not get a one-off but i don't think that it works all that well for dealing with sophisticated owners like you guys and like us i don't respond to direct mail i get it all the time i get cold calls all the time it just, it doesn't work for me. When we go to sell, we have a couple of brokers that we like working with and that's who we sell through. And we know we're probably going to get the, the highest and best price. But in addition to that, you guys are busy running your company. I'm busy running our company. I really don't have the capacity to deal with a buyer directly and go through the whole process that the broker does and qualifying them and, and dealing with that part of the equation. So I think that's why it's not all that effective uh, with apartments because it's a very consolidated industry that you guys are working in. I like to understand better how you do it, though. The only reason I said it because yeah. we did, in fact, get a deal off of uh, a call that, that Garrett made and you know, fellow syndicator Andrew Cushman hired someone to do exactly this thing. And I don't really know a syndicator who's been very successful with this, but on, on the other mm -hmm. hand, no one's actually really tried it. And it could be because, well, it doesn't work, but maybe it does. So I'm just curious. 
how do you guys do it, right? Because in, in a more sophisticated buyer or seller, there tends to be obviously an LLC wrapped in a state, you know, wrapped in a whatever. Yeah. And there's always like typically multiple partners. So I'd like to know how yeah. you would approach that. And having said that, we have we do receive unsolicited offers from our properties. So there's people that do it. In fact, you know, one of the ones that we're you know we're selling right now was one of those things that didn't come through a broker. Really? So, uh, yeah. So wow. I'd like to know well, how the heck do they find us? How do they get yeah. our email or phone number? Uh, can you share with a little bit how you do that? How you basically find identify the property, but more importantly, how you identify the members and get their cell phone and email addresses? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I mean, uh, as far as the the actual members of the LLC in most states, there are a few states that are incredibly challenging to actually dig through the Secretary of State. But ultimately, uh, most of the time, you can simply go to the Secretary of State website and actually find who the individual members of the LLC are. So it's very it's, it's very uh, uh, intensive as far as legwork's concerned. So we actually have a team of VAs that have been on been with us. There's four of them that have been full time with us for the past. I don't know, probably five or six years, because that's it's kind of our MO. I mean, we've got a database across the country that's taken years to build of mobile home parks, but also, you know, each one of those individual members. But then as you get each of the members out of the LLC, you got to actually skip trace their individual information, get their phone number, get their home mailing addresses, get their second home mailing address, whatever it is, and then ultimately have a system in place to actually go through and contact those folks. And so that's it. I mean, it, it's it's really not much more rocket science than that. But as far as how we get like phone numbers, cell phone numbers, we use a, you know, we've used many different systems in the path. A TLO is a, a popular one, although it's it's very hard for new folks to get signed up with. Uh, skip tracing software. We use LexisNexis in the past. The one we use currently, I can't think of the name, but it's very similar to TLO and LexisNexis. And essentially you pay per search and it's incredibly accurate data. So we can get cell phone numbers. We can get you know, home mailing addresses, secondary mailing addresses for your brother, your sister, your father. I mean, anyone you want, we can get that information. That's what we use to actually get that personal contact uh, data so that we can either send mailers or, you know, pick up the phone and make a call. And then on the flip side of that, we've got a lot of data. So like we're literally, we've got, we've got about 20,000, they're not leads, but, you know, parks, mobile home parks in our database. And of those 20,000, you know, they might have two or three or four, four phone numbers associated with them. There might be multiple members, right? Associated more than likely with the LLCs. And so we put on an all dialer system, you know, where it dials, I think it dials three, three calls at a time. And then basically you know, whichever one picks up first, that's who our, our caller is talking to. And so we just basically run that through the cycle and it takes us about four or five months to run through the entirety of that database uh, one time. So we'll get through it like two and a half times in any one given year. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's just a lot. It, it's it's very time intensive is what it is. It's not hard. It's just time intensive to actually go through all that legwork and get that that information that you need to, you know, again, directly reach out to an owner. I relate to all of this so much. We, we, I've just done this before, like some of this stuff, but it's it's really just a grind. I mean, there's not like, there's no shortcuts mm-hmm. around it. I mean, there's, I think in the apartments, it's gotten a little bit easier because you can pay like a, an arm and a leg to get on CoStar. And I think they, they'll yeah. give you some stuff, but it's always a mystery in you know, mobile home parks. You just don't see listings flying around as much. It seems. No. Yeah. You're, you're right. You guys got CoStar. CoStar is a, you know, a phenomenal tool. And then uh, Reonomy, uh, we've used that a few times. Their data is yeah. there's that their data is a lot better for multifamily than it is mm-hmm. for mobile home parks. So again, like we've always, mobile home parks have always been kind of the redheaded stepchild. And the reason being is like, it's the only asset class that has a d- diminishing supply. And so there's, you know, a decreasing inventory of mobile home parks because they're getting redeveloped, you know, and built in higher, yeah. better uses. And so, like, for any data company, it's like, well, I mean, we're we're chasing like this 
I mean, this asset, you know, and, and going after this data that ultimately is decreasing every year. Like, is there an opportunity here? Or should we just put our bets on multifamily and every other commercial asset class that is continually growing, right? If we're going to sell data for it. I think that's why we've always been kind of left out. And there's never been a full, complete source of data that we could buy, which again, I guess you could look at it as a pro and a con, right? It's a barrier to enter to us. We've taken the time, we put the legwork in. And so it's a barrier to entry for anyone getting started because it's a mountain to climb to actually, you know, start building out that database. Kevin, you've been, you've done a lot of really cool stuff over the over the years, and I'd like to know what's next for you. <laughs> that's a great that's a great question, Michael. Yeah, I mean, so, so we've made some changes in our business recently. I don't like chasing the shiny object. It, it's I've learned that typically doesn't treat you well as you're growing a business. And so many years back, I've just decided to put the blinders on. But you know, just like you, you guys, I interview a lot of folks that you always have different new perspectives on things and. About three or four years ago, I interviewed a guy on my show that was in the parking lot investing, which was, again, just like mobile home parks and asset class I had never, ever considered. It's one of those things where you're like, you don't even think that when you go to park in a downtown area, like, you know, someone owns that lot, but it's just, you just park there, you pay to park there, and you never really, a lot of folks don't think of it as a business opportunity. And in any event, I was intrigued years back when I interviewed this this fellow on my show that uh, about two years ago, we really ha- started having some deep conversations with it internally in our company. It's a very complimentary asset class we felt you know, as, as it relates to mobile home parks. And also it's, uh, it's unique in how it operates as far as uh, how the management side is handled. It's a uh, very minimally management intensive. I mean, it's just like there's not a lot of effort for an owner. There's a lot of different operators across the country that essentially you engage with and and let them run the show. A lot of them will sign a, you know, trip on that lease with you. And uh, again, it becomes basically a you know mailbox money via CVS or Walgreens trip on that type of structure. And so we've started buying parking assets uh, over the last year. We've got a few surface parking lots and some very strategic markets here uh, on the East Coast and got uh, another big asset here closing in the Tampa Bay area here in a couple of days. And so we really like the asset class um, you know, in specific markets and, and think that it's really a, it's number one, it's an opportunity for us to really cater to some of our coupon clipper type investors that we have that are just looking for wealth preservation and then buying these assets that cash flow today that are in, you know, these parking assets are in phenomenal locations that will ultimately have a higher and better use at some point in time. You know, the lowest use is in their present use today, which is that of a asphalt parking lot. And so finding things that can cash flow, get us, you know, uh, nice returns, but then also have a future potential down the road. So that's, that's, I guess that's, if there's anything that's new with us, that like, that's what we've got going on is uh, we've introduced parking investments to our, our arena. <laughs> Kevin, that's so cool, man. I, I love hearing, you know, that, that you pivoted and, and then something else tried it out. Super interesting. I've always been, you know, interested in mobile homes and how how it kind of works out. And and I love to hear that you've been able to scale the business. And it sounds like do a ton of things right there, Kevin. How can people reach you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah. So the best place to find me is uh, just on my website, kevinbup.com. Um, you can go there and you'll use the contact us link. And then ultimately, uh, if you want to learn more about our company, what we've got going on, you go to our website at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. So either one of those two sites, you can surely track me down. You guys heard it from the man. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Garrett and Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. I always enjoy uh, catching up with Kevin Bupp. It's been too long, but it reminds me also why we're in multifamily, Garrett. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of challenges that go on in that area that I think Kevin's been able to overcome just with, you know, a lot of building a lot 
uh, as far as like the, the back end, like when he was talking about data sourcing and data combing to find deals and that's seven, where 70% of his deal flow comes from, we just don't really have that issue because we're, you know, we have all these deals at our fingertips and I see the pros and cons to both, but having to build that whole engine, it really isn't a, a thing for us in the apartment game. It, it just adds two layers of complexity. One is deal flow and one is management, right? So I do like that a multifamily. I do think that if if you own your deal flow more, maybe you have more control over your deal flow. Maybe, I don't know, but you can argue that, my gosh, you're, you know, maintaining broker relationships does the same thing. On the management side though, and that this is the thing about, you know, some for someone getting into it for the first time, this is really one of the main reasons I don't teach mobile home parks is because the barrier to entry is too high, in my opinion. I mean, if if every multifamily investor had to self-manage, oh, it'd be a hard pill to swallow, you know, but that's what you got to do. Uh, same thing with self-storage as well. I mean, if you talk to self-storage guys like Hunter Thompson, the first three years, they were super unprofitable because they were trying to outsource it and it was super, super unsuccessful. So the scalability factor is so important in all of these businesses. And the fact is, it's much harder to scale mobile home parks. It's much harder to scale self-storage. A lot of these other asset classes, it's just not quite there versus we get the luxury of being able to dish it off to a third party. And there's plenty of them as far as management goes. And so so our scalability, it helps us on the payroll side. You know, I, People that are buying their, their 50 units or, or 40 units, 20 units, whatever, they're probably noticing right away that they're not, they have to share management with or maintenance guys or whatever with other assets. And it's just not as profitable as when they go do their 150 unit, which is what I figured out right away. And so now if you buy 150 units plus, you're in a real great spot where you can, you have a great staff that's working that thing. All of our assets are, are outside of where, well, you live close to our Atlanta assets, but you never really need to go there. I, I go there to check on certain things, but they run. Uh, while we sleep essentially, because there's, there's just a full staff on site that can constantly take care of that. And so having to self-manage, having to try to scale a mobile home park business, I could see there's, there being more site visits, more challenges around the HR side of things for sure. On the other hand, it appears that the cap rates are still higher and the cash flow is still higher. And we talked to some of these uh, mobile home park guys. We know some big ones, even self-storage guys, the returns appear to be higher. You know, I, I talked to a, you know, a Bitcoin millionaire the other day and you're like, you know, should we consider getting into other asset classes, right? There's a, there's a lot of argument for maybe diversifying a little bit, but I mean, what do you think about that? So I have a feeling about, you know, I don't really like to change what's not broken. Essentially, if something's working, I think the risk is lower by sticking with your asset class as long as it's working and you know how to make it work and profitable. Now, if if there is an asset class that comes up that's interesting, that maybe adds something to your lifestyle or that is is exciting or, or something like that, and you want to dabble in it and see if you can go deep in it, I think there's some merit there because it's enhancing your overall happiness and there's something that to be said about that. And you know, otherwise, for me, I just like to keep scaling <laughs> going. I know not everybody feels that way. That's just a, a personal preference. Yeah. I mean, there's this is the problem. A lot of people suffer from shiny objectitis. And certainly I did. I mean, I you know, I, I traded some options. I flipped the house. I, I wholesaled and uh, I negotiated short sales for a while. And it's super exciting. The problem is you're never getting traction. 
with anything. I have this philosophy, and I, I haven't actually really lived it out yet, but my observation from others is give a business at least five years before you create another one, right? Because it takes about five years to kind of get up and get it not only stabilized, but systemized and really achieve scale. And maybe, maybe at that end, when you have, you know, you basically replaced yourself as CEO, COO, whatever, you had a team in place, you can say, oh, my gosh, I'm so bored. What should I do with myself? Oh, I know. I'll get into Bitcoin. Sounds exciting to me. So I don't actually necessarily disagree with you. I think a lot of people abandon a certain, uh, certain course because it's not as exciting anymore. On the other hand, what the only thing I think that we would potentially do one point is you know, really, we would never abandon a business. We would only maybe add a level business if there's maybe some some economies of scale. If we can leverage the same team or some uh, some process, and 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 it's somehow kind of serves us in some way. But shiny optictitis is, you know, it's a it's a lot of people are affected by this. And I think in the beginning, you got to try different things. We talked about the pros and cons now of mobile home parks and multifamily investing. To some degree, self storage is that property management component that that we don't love and. Therefore, multifamily still for us is still the best place to be. It performed great in COVID. So uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you if you want to invest in multifamily syndications. Uh, head on over to nighthawkequity.com and click the join button. You can fill out a short form, have a conversation with us. Uh, Garrett is busy working on deals right now as we speak, but we can't tell you about it because we haven't had a conversation with you yet. So head on over, schedule a call with us. We'd love to have uh, a conversation with you. And, you know, we are in, you know, in the, in the, in the scaling slash system building business. And we have a, a, a basically five full-time people on the team, including Garrett and I and Drew. And we have a full-time asset manager and investor relations person, as well as a full-time construction manager. Where I want to get to, where we want to get to, is a very predictable, systemized business where we can buy a, a, a 30 whatever $50 million deal and we have systems that take it all the way from closing through construction and stabilization so that we hit our performa every single time, you know? And so that's kind of what we're striving for so that when you invest with Nighthawk, you know exactly what you're getting and what your, what your forecasted returns are. So I'm speaking to the passive investors. One reason I love this business so much also is because it doesn't just give passive investors the ability to generate financial freedom through passive income, but also active investors, right? So if you're listening, watching this right now and you are, you want to be or you're the active entrepreneur, you want to get into real estate investing and maybe you don't know how to do it, the thing you got to do is focus on that first deal. And we're rolling out something that's really super exciting. We did a launch earlier in the year about this stuff. We kind of had a, a pilot program. It's called the Dealmaker uh, Training. Uh, Dealmaker Training is something that uh, gives you everything that you need to do your first deal. And the thing that drives that whole thing is what we call the Dealmaker Blueprint. The, the Dealmaker Blueprint outlines the process from getting you where you are right now all the way to doing your first deal quitting your job and scaling your portfolio so that you can ultimately make a difference and live a life of significance. So that thing is now open. I want you to head to themichaelblanc.com forward slash blueprint and check it out. It may not be for you, but it may be for you. It's uh, it's a, one of our most affordable and most effective ways for you to do your first deal. And that's at themichaelblanc.com forward slash blueprint. All right, appreciate you guys listening, watching this. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading the free blueprint on closing your first multifamily deal. Head over to themichaelblanc.com slash blueprint to get the free training.